I really don't think they could have found a better music to go with that uh, because so much of parenting is like a Benny Hill movie, isn't it? <clears throat> if you don't know who Benny Hill is, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, Pastor Steve kicked us off last week with the idea of, you know, when we, when we begin parenting, do we have an end goal in mind? You know, how many of us really had no end goal in mind even when we got married? We just like, oh, that's the thing to do, get married. Then just all of a sudden we decided, well, we're going to have kids. Well, who has kids? Well, what's the end goal? We, we have no clue what the end goal in mind. And if you're like me, most of us had no good role parents, uh, role models to follow. And so when uh, you brought your first kid home, you're like, what in the world do I do with this? You know, Steve, uh, Pastor Steve said last week that, you know, the end goal should be this. To teach them that this life is about nothing more than a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that you can enjoy for all eternity. And to show them that this life is about nothing more than a relationship that we can have together that we can enjoy for all eternity. Let me, let me ask you this. When you left the house, did you ever think you were going to go back home? Or did you say goodbye forever? I live 900 miles away from my home intentionally. I love my mom. I love my brother. I love my sister. I love my other brother too. I forgot to say brothers. But I don't want to live next to them. I got enough dysfunction of my own. I don't need theirs with me. Anybody with me on this? It was so bad. We brought Brian home. We were young. Kelly and I got married at 19. We brought Brian home. I think we were 21 or 22. We had no idea what it meant to be a parent. It was all great and glorious when they were in the hospital because they took care of them and it all looked so easy. We got home and we were like, what do we do now? Well, I'll tell you what we didn't do. For five days, we didn't realize Brian wasn't pooping. You know what happens when a baby doesn't poop for five days? They scream at the top of their lungs. And we're like, what is wrong with this baby? He was so good in the hospital. He was so kind. He was so gentle. What happened? And Kelly looked at me one day and goes, he ain't pooped. That's a problem. It didn't get much better. You know, we all struggle with the idea of what it means to be a parent. If we don't have something in mind of where we want to go, where we want to travel, it all just is a struggle. How many would agree that, that parenting is a struggle? How many would agree you're part of the struggle? Exactly. Yeah, why? Because we don't know. We, we, we struggle with this. And so, uh, when, uh, how many have seen the sitcom Mom? I hadn't seen it until recently. It's my new favorite sitcom. It is so funny, and it is so relatable to life. Uh, that's what that, that uh, little clip was. It, you know, when you look at that, I, I had to cut this way down. I had like 12 minutes of, of video. I just want to play you the first, sit, the first episode and just get up here and go, now, generational dysfunction. But I had to cut it down and give you some pieces of it. So here's, here's what you should have seen up there if you were paying attention. Uh, mom taught daughter, taught granddaughter how to be a, have a terrible man picker. They taught them how sleeping around is a means to coping with stress. How leaving, a, leaving the kids alone to fend for themselves is a way of life. Sarcasm is a defensive mechanism. None of us would use that, would we? Unhealthy anger management, teenage pregnancy, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, broken parental uh, relationships, and so many more just in that little two-minute two clip. And we laugh about that. You want to know why we laugh about it? Because we don't laugh, we'll cry. Because we may not have those issues, but we got issues. And if we don't laugh about those things, we'll start uh, really, really struggling with our own issues, and we don't know what to do with them. And so we, we, we break out in our emotions, and we don't know how to deal with our emotions because we've never been taught how to deal with our emotions. And so we cry. You know, crying's not a bad thing. Sometimes relieving the stress of life through tears is one of the best things that we can do. And we've been taught, if you're like me, you've been taught all your life, you don't do that. So here's where we want to go this morning. 
<clears throat> what you model matters. What you model matters. Let me say it a different way. What you, what's modeled before you is greater than the knowledge that's within you. What's modeled before you is greater than the knowledge within you. Now, as we begin this morning, I, how, many, how many are parents? How many got parents? How many wish your parents were different? Yeah, you can't pick that. Here's where I want to go this morning. The quicker and the earlier we can get people to realize the truths of the, the generational dysfunction that are passed down to us, the quicker and the er- earlier we can change the different generational dysfunctions. Can't hardly get that out. Um, so I, I'm talking to everybody. I'm talking to you grandparents out there. Address the generational dysfunctions in your life. I'm talking to you parents. Address the generational dysfunctions in your life. And I'm talking to you teenagers. Address the generational dysfunctions in your life at your age, teenagers. Yes, yeah, yeah, poke your parents. You're screwing me up. <laughs> Be real about it. How, does it. how does it feel to be in a room full of jacked up, messed up people? Because isn't that the truth? We're all jacked up, we're all messed up, and we're all trying to figure this thing out. But if we can reach the young generation, these teens and these preteens, with a better message, with a greater foundation, maybe they can stop the generational dysfunction. With our help, with us walking them through this, because what we model is greater than the knowledge within us. <clears throat> Paul, we're, we're given instructions throughout the entire Bible about how we're supposed to raise kids and how we're supposed to live this life, but Paul sums it up in, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. He says this, uh, fathers or parents do not exasperate your children. And the parent, all the kids said, amen. You, you don't, may not know what exasperate, exasperate means, but here's what it means. Do your parents ever provoke you? Do they ever incite you? Do they ever annoy you? Do they ever irritate you? Do they ever frustrate you? And do they do this on a continuous basis because that's how it's written? What Paul is saying is parents, stop stressing your kids out. How many, how many of you kids, how many of you parents felt stressed as a kid? Yeah. Do you know how much stress impacts your body? We're going to look at that this morning. There's several studies out there, numerous studies out there, that talk about stress on the body and how it is molding you to be somebody God never created you to be. And it's through generational dysfunctions that this is all taking place. And he says, but instead of uh, exasperating your children, instead of annoying them, instead of inciting them, instead of irritating them, how about let's let's do this. How about we bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord? And so, you know, I thought, you know, there's got to be somebody in the Bible that's a good example. There's got to be a family in there somewhere that's an example. And, and Pastor Steve and I both do a lot of prep, and we listen to different messages, we diff- listen to different podcasts, we, uh, we read books, and we do different things, and there's a lot of pastors out there, that are preachers out there that will, that will say, hey, there's, here, here's a, a good biblical example. A lot of them will go to David and say, David's a good example. Let me ask you a question. What's David known for? Adultery. What else is he known for? Murder? What do you think he taught his kids to do? Follow his example. Is he a good example? No. There are parts of his life that are good, but overall he's not a good example. So there's really nobody else that you can turn to. So I just thought, you know, let's go back to the first family uh, that, uh, where the nation of Israel gets its, its upbringing, the, 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 the God's chosen people, if you will, and let's just start there and see what happens in a short amount of time. 
And so in Genesis chapter 12, we see God's call on Abram. He says, hey, leave your land, leave your people, and go to a place that I am going to send you. You know what the first thing he does? He takes his dad and he takes his nephew. (laughs) Disobedience from the beginning. There's a famine in the land. You know what happens? He goes to Egypt instead of trusting God. Genesis chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. He says this to his, his wife, Sarah. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but will let you live. So say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. What's he tell his own wife? Lie. How many of you know and have been experienced and have lived life that lying is a stress reliever? Lying is a way of life. Lying is a way to get out of the problems and the, uh, the, the errors of this world. You just lie your way through it. Anybody with me? All right, all right. Maybe I'm the only one. Uh, so uh, we get past that. Uh, God rescues him from there. We get back past that and uh, kind of just really quick through this. Abraham and Lot separate. There's an argument between them. wonder why. God told him to leave them. Lot goes his way. Abraham goes his way. Lot gets in trouble. Abraham rescues Lot. Uh, and then God solidifies and renews the covenant. And he says, hey, I want you to understand this. I'm going to make a great nation through you. What's the very next thing he does? <laughs> Sarah says, I can't have kids. Hey, here's my handmaiden. Go have a kid with her. Is that somebody we want to follow? He goes, has a kid with her. What do you think happens from there? Jealousy, bitterness, anger. Man, that's, a, that's the family I want to model my life after. A few more, few more uh, time goes by, a few more years go by. Uh, there's another famine in the land. Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Uh, now Abraham moved on from there into the region of Negev, and he lived between uh, Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gera. And there Abraham said to his wife Sarah, Say she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gera, sent for Sarah and took her as his wife. Now, do you think these are the only times that Abraham has lied? Or do you think this is a way of life for Abraham? You see, let me, let me just, just give you a little bit of my background. I grew up in a very uh, troubled home. I, I, my mom loves me. She did the best she could, and I don't throw stones at her. That's not my point. But here's the thing. It didn't matter whether I told the truth or whether I lied, I got beat either way. Now, if you grew up in an environment like that, what would you try to do your best? If you did something wrong, you had to become a good liar. Because maybe if you told a good lie, you might not get beat. You know what I struggle with today? Care to guess? Lying. Why? Because that's the model that was imprinted in my heart early in my life. It's just something that comes natural to me. It's just a way of life with me. And you'll find as we go through this, and hopefully we can get to the majority of this, what we experience early in life is imprinted upon our mind and our heart, so that becomes a way of life, and you have to fight really hard to overcome those things. Lying isn't just something that Abraham does. Lying is who Abraham is. Cheating is who he is, and, and, and we, he's the father of many nations. Yep, we'll see that in a minute. God is, is a just and a gracious and a loving God. If he wasn't, none of us would be sitting here. None of us would be sitting here. So uh, finally, uh, Abraham and Sarah have a, a child at, at, at 99. Whew. I can't imagine having a kid at 56 
at 99, they have a kid. They name him Isaac. Uh, he's the son of promise. Uh, Abraham, about 15 to 20 years later, we're not exactly sure, Abraham is tested. Now, everybody looks at Abraham and said, he's, he's the man of faith. He's, he's this, this great leader. He's this great person. Now, now, the little bit that we just saw right here, when he was 75, God said, lead your country and do what I tell you to do. And Abraham said, yeah, okay, I'll try it. And he said, all right, I'm going to lie. He said, I'm going to take my nephew with me. And then I'm going to have an affair in front of my wife, and that's not going to go well. And then I'm going to lie again, and then I'm going to finally have this son, and then we're going to have a few more years, and then Abraham is tested. Let me ask you when his faith was developed and when it was proven. See, it was developed for about 40 to 50 years, and it was proven on the mountain with his son Isaac. Yeah, Abraham is a great man of faith, but he has a whole walk with God where he screwed up. You with me? You might have a great faith in God, but let me tell you, your history shows a lot of places you screwed up. And the more open and authentic you are with your kids about that, the more they're going to be able to break this dysfunction in their life. The more you cover it up, they know it. Hey, kids, don't raise your hands, but how many of you know your parents are jacked up? Yes. See, some of you brave enough to raise your hands. <laughs> right? You, we think we hide it. We can't hide it. They know it. Just be honest about it. Anyway, uh, so we go on from there. Uh, we go another generation. Uh, Isaac and Rebekah get married. And they have two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the, uh, the, the child that goes wayward ways, and he marries a girl that they don't like, and there's all kinds of problems with that. Uh, Jacob's name is literally the deceiver. Now follow me. You got Abraham's a liar. Isaac, we skipped this part, but you can look it up. Isaac's a liar. Now we have two sons, and the second son is known as the deceiver. Generational dysfunction. What happens when you lie, 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 lie? Eventually you get into deceiving as a way of life. And you know it so much that you call your son the deceiver at birth. And you're doing nothing to stop it. You're just acknowledging it. Man, I wish we could grasp this. Gets worse from there. Jacob, the deceiver, ends up with two wives and two mistresses. One from each of the wives. What a jacked up place. Twelve kids. The last one, Joseph. Well, not quite the last one. There's one more later on. But Joseph is his favorite. It's the son from the, the wife he loves the most. Favoritism. Let me ask you, who's your, who's your mom's favorite child? Yeah. How do you know that? Right? Right? We didn't even talk about that. Favoritism is from the beginning in Abraham's life, and it goes through. It's another generational dysfunction. Favoritism. My son and daughter, they joke back and forth. My daughter calls my son the golden child. My son, I don't know. Anyway, it is what it is. Um, It gets so bad in the first three generations of God's chosen people that Joseph's own brothers want to kill him. But instead of killing him, they do the next best thing. They sell him into slavery. And then they go home and they tell their dad, 
that an animal ate them. And they lived with that lie for several more years. That's the first three generations of God's chosen people. Generational dysfunction. Now, we get in, and, and they, long story short, they become slaves in the land that the, uh, in Egypt, and uh, Moses comes on the scene, and uh, you would think, well, Moses is uh, put into a basket. He's rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. He's raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He ought to be able to jake, break the generational dysfunction. Who, who nursed Moses? Read the story. His mom. You can't break this if you're still involved in it. So what's Moses come up to be? An angry man. He takes matters in his own hand, rage, kills a man, runs off into the desert. God uh, talks to him, brings him to a place where, uh, hey, you need to realize you've got generational dysfunction. Let's work on this. Let's come back. He comes back. He rescues the, the, the children of Israel. God shows them his great power through these ten miraculous events. You would think that that would be enough for them to break generational dysfunction, wouldn't you? God has showed them repeatedly ten times how powerful and how great and how, how much his majesty is to them. They get out in the desert, and what's the first thing they do? Turn back to the idols. Moses is on the mountain. God has written down the, the Ten Commandments. Moses comes down from the mountain. He's got God's, God's written word literally in his hands. He sees the people playing and screwing around. And the first thing that Moses does is take what God wrote for him and throw it on the ground out of a fit of rage and anger, breaks it, uh, crushes up the, the, the calf, uh, pours it into some uh, water, and makes the people drink it. I'm glad he's not my leader. You think there's some generational dysfunction in Moses? It's powerful. God says, get back on the mountain. I've got something else to tell you. He's up there, and Moses said, hey, just, just let me see you. I believe in you. I trust you. Just let me see you. And God says, you can't see me. You're going to die. But I'll tell you what. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll walk past you, and you can see my butt. You don't believe me? You read it for yourself. It's in Exodus 34. But we're going to pick it up in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And this is what God says as he passes by and lets Moses see his butt. And he's passed by in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, he's slow to anger, abounding in love, faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Now we want to concentrate on that last part of the verse, and we'll get to that. But that's where we want to concentrate on is the justice and the, 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 the judicial acts of God, the punishment part of it. I don't think that's what you really think it means. See, I grew up in an environment where uh, God was this uh, old man sitting up in heaven on his, on his throne with this great big gavel, and he was just waiting for you to screw up so he could pound you into the dirt. And the more I read Scripture and the more I understand, and this verse alone gives us a completely different picture of God. Yes, there is justice. But let's go back and look at the foundation, which I believe if we will put this in, into play in our parenting, in our life, that we will come up with a different product of our parenting. He says in the beginning, here's the foundation of what we need to, be, uh, to do. Uh, we need to be compassionate and grace-filled. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were compassionate and grace-filled when your kid did something wrong? When your kid, you walk in the room and he's covered in ink from top to bottom. When's the last time you thought, you know, we'll get through this. It'll be okay. 
I know you didn't mean to do this. I know that you really don't understand what you're doing. Or, or when you go in there and, and you've got, I, I don't know how much you guys pay for this, but you've got a $100 uh, piece of uh, makeup that you, know, you cherish and your, your daughter has it smeared all over their face, all over the dog. And that you, you just say, you know what, sweetie? We'll get another piece of makeup. It won't be a big deal. Compassionate and graceful. What would be the difference if that's how you were treated? Let's just go on. Patient, filled with love, faithful, and forgiving. What would your relationship be? How would your relationship be different if that's the way your parents raised you? How would your relationship with your kids be different if that's how you raised them? What would it matter in your life if these things were the foundation of how you responded to everything in life? Let me tell you one thing, you'd be a lot less stressed in your life, wouldn't it? If you could understand the foundation that God has for us. Here's, here, here's where we want to go. I want you to know parents, maybe you're not a parent, but you're a parent to somebody. Or you got a parent. Parents matter. What you do today will impact your kids for generations to come. Parents matter. Here's where I think what God is saying is, I will, I will uh, visit the, uh, the punishment upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation for the parents. And here's, here's what I think it is. I think it is the natural consequences of what you're teaching your kids on a daily basis. I really believe that's what God is talking about there. There was a study done in New York prison system in 19, or excuse me, 1874. They wanted to know the impact of parents on generations. And so they went back into 1720 and they found these two individuals. Uh, one was a town bum uh, and he married uh, a lady that probably wasn't much better than him. They, uh, they uh, in between the two of them, had eight kids. They uh, brought eight kids into this world. And between uh, those two and those eight kids, uh, by the year 1874, they could find 1,200 descendants, direct descendants of these two, this, this one couple. So they did a study on those 1,200 people, and here's what they found in 1874. Of those 1,200, 310 were homeless. 160 were prostitutes. 180 were drug or alcohol addicts. 150 were convicted criminals, including seven murderers. They estimate that New York had spent in 1874 $1.5 million to care for those 1,200 descendants. Parents matter. What you model before your kids is stronger than any knowledge that's within your kids. What you do on a daily basis, how you stress your kids out, how you provoke your kids, how you incite your kids, will impact them for generations to come. Generations to come. Uh, in a very similar study about the same time, uh, in 1874, uh, they found another couple uh, I, I want to paraphrase or uh, preface this with it's a Christian couple. Here, here's what I want you to know. I was raised by a Christian couple. You got dysfunctions. Just because you got the, the term Christian in front of you, you still got issues. Um, but this, this couple tried their best, from what we understand, to raise their kids in a godly manner, in a godly home. And here's the results. They had, these two had 1,400 direct descendants. They had 11 kids, 14 direct descendants by 1874. 13 college presidents, uh, 65 uh, college professors, 100 attorneys, 32 state judges, 85 authors, 66 physicians, 80 political officers, uh, three state senators, and one vice president. 
There's 995 people missing in that one. That makes me wonder if they just didn't want to tell you what they were doing, they couldn't find them, or it didn't support their thesis. Because we all got issues. I don't care where you're raised. But just look on the surface at the difference between two people over 160 years in the impact those parents had on those kids and their kids' kids and their kids' 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 kids. It's massive. It only takes one to break the generational dysfunction just as it only takes one to start a new generational dysfunction. You can break it or you can start it. It's all up to you. There is hope, returning to the foundation that God has for us. In Ephesians 6, 4, again, it says, don't stress out your kids. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. The thing that we saw earlier is is this compassionate and graceful God. Those are foundation. For every dysfunction in your life, I guarantee you there's a function that God has designed. So, I was raised to learn how to lie. What would be the function that God would want me to do? Tell the truth. Abraham taught his kids how to cheat. What would, what would he want them to do? God would say one man, one woman for a lifetime. It's just, it's just what God has designed. It is what we are to be doing. And so, don't exasperate your children, but teach them and train them and instruct them. Here's, I, I, I despise messages that say, here's seven things to make things better. Mm-mm. No, no, no. If that was that easy, things would be better. But here's what I want to challenge you with. Here are three starting points that I want you to try and do and just see what God will change in your life. Here's the first one. Acknowledge you've got dysfunctions. I want you to leave here sometime this week. I want you to go home. I want you to find a quiet place, and I want you to say, God, show me the dysfunctions in my life, and write them down. Put pen to paper, typewriter to computer, whatever you want to say. I can't read my writing, so I type everything in the computer, put it in a document, and, and, and study that document for a while. Acknowledge the dysfunction in your life. There's something powerful about assessing your situation and understanding where you are right now. In 1946, there was a Britain study started. It's been going on ever since. It's a, it's a study that most people didn't know about until recently. Uh, in 1946, just following the war, uh, they wanted to follow uh, uh, newborn babies uh, for their entire life and see what uh, impacts social, economic, and different aspects of life, uh, how it impacted those kids. They did this. They, <laughs> 14,000 kids were born in one week. Those are the kids that they followed initially. Uh, they did it again in 1958, 1970, 1990, 2000, and 2001. They are right now following over 70,000 kids. There are mounds of data from this, this study. Mounds and mounds and mounds of data. Here's the number one thing that, 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 that they discovered. Your economic imp- the, the economic impacts are huge in your life. I'm thinking, duh. Being born rich, being born poor. What could be there to, be, to worry about? What they found is when you're born in a poor situation, you are less likely to get out of that situation. I'm thinking, you needed a study to, to figure that out. I don't know, kind of, probably kind of looked at life and went, that's probably pretty... St-. Anyway, here's the, here's the one that, uh, that, that really got me. The number two finding, parents matter. Again, if you read scripture, you would go, duh, Here's what they found. If parents uh, early in the child's life uh, were involved in their life, is, uh, such as reading, listening, 
teaching, basics of life, they were significantly less likely to remain in the same economic situation by the age of 30. They had gotten out of that situation. Uh, Want a modern day uh, book? Pick up the book Gifted Hands, story of Ben Carson. Mom could neither read nor write, tricked her kids into, they didn't know that, and uh, he is now one of the leading neurosurgeons in America. Great story. Anyway, uh, parents really matter. So how many of you parents were fully engaged in the early life reading and listening and teaching and caring and compassionate and loving and all those things that God has called us to do? And how many of you were like, you should be seen and not heard? I ain't got time for you. What's wrong with you? You got into the whipped cream. Don't you know you can't get into the whipped cream? How, how many of you grew up in an environment where there's more yelling than hugging? More, more frustration than, than anything else? You know what you're teaching your kids? You're stressing them out. You're teaching them you don't know how to deal with your emotions so they don't know how to deal with their emotions. You know what happens when their kids come along and the, your kids don't know how to deal with their emotions? Their kids' kids don't know how to deal with their emotions. And stress will kill us. It's being proven over and over and over. Uh, we need to build a foundation of compassion, grace, patience, love, faithfulness, and forgiveness. Second step. Second thing I want you to do. Not only do I want you to write them down, but kids, here's I want to talk to you guys very specifically. You poked your dad. <laughs> write it down. After you write it down, go find your dad and talk it about. Talking about the dysfunctions isn't going to make them worse. Hiding them and covering them up will multiply them. Come talk to me. I'll tell you all about it. Are we, are we online? Seriously, are we online or is it still down? Uh, it's up. Never mind. Come to me afterwards and I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> Honest. You can't hide the dysfunction. When I asked earlier how many, how many kids would admit their parents are dysfunctional, hands went up. You might think you're hiding it. You can't hide it. And the stress that we are putting on our kids by not talking about this, by continuing to do this, is literally killing our kids. Let me, let me tell you a story. Uh, one of my granddaughters, she's here this morning. I was talking to use her in, a, in an example. Um, try to get through a little easier than I did last time. Uh, when my kids were young, maybe you can relate to this, I couldn't deal with their crying. I just couldn't. Just not part of me. Do you have anything to cry about? We take care of you. We feed you. We change your diaper. You ain't got nothing to be crying about. What's wrong with you? That was my mentality. As much as I knew it was wrong, the model that was before me was the model that was within me. As much as I knew better, I couldn't change it. Through life experience and life change and God doing some miraculous things, my granddaughter, my first granddaughter was born Hallie. She was a screamer. I'm not joking. I, w I wished back then we, we, had, we had video capability, but we weren't smart enough to use it. You literally could have her in the house and she'd be screaming and put your foot outside the door and she would stop. And so many a days, many a nights, I would just scoop her up and I'd put her into my arms and pull her quite cl very close to my chest and I'd walk out the door and I'd start bawling. And I'd walk up and down the street and I'd be 
bawling my eyes out. But internally, I was as calm and as cool as a cucumber. And when we were walking, wouldn't be long, a couple of seconds, maybe 15, 20 seconds, I could feel her heartbeat come in rhythm with mine. And all of the stress that was in her when I picked her up, the, the tightness of the muscles, the, the clenching of the teeth, the pure bloody screams would just calm down. And she would soothe out. And I'd walk for hours until she fell asleep. And I'd bawl the whole time. You want to know why I was crying? Because I didn't have that patience with my own kids. And it was breaking my heart that I had taught them what was taught to me. But I have, from that day, I have set out to teach a different way. And I'm not there yet. Because I still struggle with respect. And when I think I'm being disrespect, I lose my temper. And I'm much harder on my granddaughters than they ever deserve. But I'm working on it. Because I want them to understand there's a better way. There's a way of compassion and grace and love and faithfulness, forgiveness. There's a better foundation out there. i got to bring this rapidly to a close, so I apologize. But there's a, another doctor in Canada that I was listening to preparing for this, uh, Dr. Gaber Matt. Uh, he's a, a medical doctor who is making a connection between not just treating the, the physical symptoms, but understanding the background of the individual and understanding the, the social connections that are there or not there from the very earliest of stages. What I described with my granddaughter, they have put uh, probes on, on babies and moms and they've put them in a room and they've put them in stressful situations and, and they've watched the, the chemical reactions in the baby rise uh, and when the mom is holding them tight and, and the heartbeat comes into, into play, uh, the babies, all of the, those things calm right back down. They've taken that same baby and removed the parent from the situation and put them under that same stress. And the, 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 the cortisol and adrenal levels just spike because we're not created for that. We're, we're created for attachment. And, and it's just crazy stressful on the baby. As soon as the, the parent comes back in, immediately everything drops back down to normal levels. Man, that ought to tell us something. When we put so much stress on our kids and on our, on our uh, siblings and, and on, on our, uh, just the people in our life, we put so much stress that the adrenal levels and the cortisol levels say spiked all the time. We are teaching our body to respond totally different than what God designed us to, to respond. And we ought to understand this. Here, just in his studies, here, let me just give you some stats. If you're from a divorced home, the risk of you having a stroke 60 years later doubles to same people in the same category. So if you're in a category that the stroke level is 30%, and you're from a divorced home and the next person is not, the chances of you having a stroke double, so 60% chance 60 years later, based on the stress alone in your life. Here's another one. Sexually abused boys uh, have triple the rate of heart attacks than non-abused boys. Their suicide rates are off the charts compared to other people. Off the charts. Girls. Uh, where, where their fathers are distant and absent from the home will menstruate earlier where fathers are connected to the family and connected to the daughters. Stress is an amazing, powerful thing. 
They did a study of 1,700 women for 10 years here in America. Women who were unhappy in their marriages and failed to discuss those issues were four times more likely to die than the women who were unhappy in their marriage but had an outlet to discuss those issues. That's why I'm telling you today, write them down, talk them out, get the stress out. Four times more likely to die because they had no outlet. When I was in the military, my last four and a half, five years, I was a first sergeant. And uh, um, if you don't know what that is, basically a, a go between between the enlisted force and the commander. And our job mainly was to, to uh, more morale, welfare, and recreation of the troops. Mainly, people look at it as we're disciplinarians. And I, and I just like, I don't want to do that. So when I set out, I, I set out a completely different way. I, I had a completely open-door policy. I didn't care what you came in and told me as long as you didn't commit a crime. And even if you did, if you're honest about that, we'd work through it. So I was in one of the toughest squadrons. I had all the trades, uh, electrical, plumbing, uh, HVAC, um, uh, bull, uh, the heavy equipment guys. I had the fire department. I, I had all the folks that worked hard and played even harder. And when I went in, I said, I got a different mindset about this. And I, so I told people, and it spread quick, you got issues, you come talk to me. So I spent 12 hours a day listening to the troops. I'm a terrible counselor. How many of you know what to do? Seriously, how many you know what to do in life? Then shut up and do it. Right? That's counsel. If you know what to do, I can't help you. My point is, is I spent 12 hours a day listening to these guys, listening to these troops. They could come in and tell me anything they want. It, it didn't matter. But in the four and a half years I was in that squadron, we had no DUIs. Typically, they had five or six DUIs a year. We had no DUIs. We had no domestics. I had one, but I don't count that one. He was a 6'6", 6'5", 6'7", fireman. He was probably 370 pounds. His wife said she, that he hit her. We were like, nah, you wouldn't be standing. Um, she hit him and trying to get him in trouble. Uh, so I don't count that one. I had one crime, uh, and I inherited one drug addict. Four and a half years. I never got called out. You want to know why? Because they came into my office, and they told me what was going on, and they got it all off their chest, and they didn't go home and drink. They didn't go home and kick their, kick their kids, and didn't go home and beat their wife, didn't go home and kill the dog. They didn't do those things. Why? Because they had an outlet. If you don't have an outlet as a woman over 10 years, you are four, four times more likely to die than somebody that would talk about their issues. Let that sink in for a minute. My wife found a different study. She found this a while back, so I, I, it fits in here. It's, this is all about social connection early in life. And if the, what we teach early is what lasts the longest. And so uh, here, here's, here's another study. Uh, do you know today you need four hugs just to get through life? Four hugs a day just to get through life. You need eight hugs to maintain your mental health as it is right now. Eight hugs a day. And if you want to get better at your mental health, you need 12 or more. Now tell me social connection and stress levels aren't something that God created for us to know about. These are scientific studies, probes put on you, computers documenting all this data and stuff, and this is what they come with. I wish I had so much more time. I don't. Uh, one study found that simply providing a way for stress relief through attachment, through, through hugs, through uh, loving on people, through talking, uh, they reduced the harmful chemical production in your body and allowed it to return to its normal state. I'm telling you, you can change this. I don't care where you're at. I don't care where you... I, 20 years ago, I was suicidal every day. That's what I thought about. Today, I'm the most positive person. My wife is more pessimistic than me. Hopefully, she didn't see that. 
talking with your kids teaches them to acknowledge the dysfunction and start dealing with it, learn it, find a new path. Here's, the last, here's my last challenge. You can't do this alone. It's impossible. you got to have people walking with you to do this. And here's what I want to challenge. We normally we shut down our small groups and, uh, during the summer, uh, and, and we will this year too. But here's, here's my challenge for you. Uh, would you commit or would you uh, be willing to host uh, a group of people that come to your house once a week or once a month and play games and eat, eat something to, have something to eat? you got to eat anyway. Create a safe environment where you guys can walk together. You can talk about the dysfunctions that you wrote down, that you talked with your kids. You can get in an environment of people that you trust and love and that you can have an environment where there's accountability, where you can grow and you can realize that dysfunction doesn't have to be a part of your life. And you can do that through playing games and having some food. Would you do that? If you will, come find me afterwards. Send me an email. Send me a text. My card's out in the the lobby. It's got my uh, personal cell phone on it. It's got my email on it. However you want to do it. For three months this summer, would you commit to once a month being a part of that? Where did I get that from? Here's what God tells us. In the New Testament alone, there's about 40 passages that he says we need to be working one with another. Why does he tell us that? Because he knows how dysfunctional we really are. Here's some of them. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. All these things will help us overcome the dysfunctions. Why? Because we weren't created to be alone. When we're socially detached, I know we had to do it for a season. And I know there are people that are really liking the online stuff. But this is what we were created for. Not just this, but it says that they met day by day in people's homes. We were created for group settings. That's where we're going to heal. That's where we're going to grow. That's where life can change. That's where we can take dysfunction and turn it into function. Make a difference, not just today, but in generations to come. Here's one of the other ones. If you want a list of these, uh, you can email us. It'll be on Facebook later on when we post the the message. If you're online now, they'll send you a link to this. There's about 40 um, passages that talk about one another. And here's one that I just want to highlight He tells us to pray for one another. And and I just like the opportunity now just to pray for you. You pray for me. Because life is difficult. Parenting is a struggle. But we shouldn't make it harder than than it is. So let me pray. Father, we love you and we praise you. God, the struggle is real. We've seen it from the very beginning. Abraham himself, the, the, the individual that you chose to create a nation, And in three generations, they had jacked it up so bad that that the dysfunction had come down to killing. But God, even in the midst of all of that, you had a plan. Even in the midst of all of that, no matter uh, liars, deceivers, murderers, uh, selling your own family into slavery, it says that even in the midst of all of that, you were compassionate and that you were filled with grace love and faithfulness you'll never walk away from us in the midst of all of that you're still laying the foundation which you want us to build on so father this morning no matter where we're at in this dysfunctional life god may you encourage each and every one of us that there's a better way that there's a place that we can go that we can grow 
and that we can know that you love us even in the midst of the struggle. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.